Hey, Piers, it's Michelle. I've got some exciting news. The Piers Project has just produced the first Australian women's fashion retailer podcast for Forever New. This podcast, Unforgettable Moments, is about the defining moments in a woman's life and how they shape us into who we are today. Some of the amazing guests featured on this four-part series include social innovator and a winner of the AFR's 100 Women of Influence, Madeline Butchner, award-winning ballerina Isabel Dashwood and professional high jumper Amy Pekovic. Make sure to tune in now to Unforgettable Moments, the forever new podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or just head straight to the link in this episode's description. Now, let's get into this episode. This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveller, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. Sometimes all you need to change the world is a bucket of determination and a really, really good idea. That's exactly what pushed our next guest to create a life-changing product at just 21 years old. I'm thrilled to welcome Jackie Savage onto the show today. Jackie's the founder of MedCorp Technologies and has invented a product that has been listed among the top 100 global engineering innovations by NASA. I'm so excited to talk to Jackie today about how she created a medical technology company at the age of 21, how she wrestled with imposter syndrome, and how we can discover what we're truly passionate about. For those of you who haven't yet, Make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these amazing millennial entrepreneurs. Without further ado, here is my conversation with the awe-inspiring Jackie Savage. Jackie, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Oh my goodness. 
you and I connected recently via LinkedIn, I think it was, very randomly. But when I looked into you and all the amazing work you're doing in the biomed space and now kind of just in the entrepreneurial space in general, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, no, thank you for the invitation. Of course. It's always fun to, to meet new people and, and share the journey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Cannot wait to dive into that journey. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Well, I mean, by way of background, um, I'm an engineer by training. So I studied product design engineering and then specialised in biomedical engineering. Um, I was very young when I had started developing a piece of technology, which has now grown into a a medical technology wearable company, which operates an artificial intelligence, which is Medcorp, um, and also a consumer baby product brand that focuses on health, wellbeing and education of infants. Um, But yeah, so engineer by training and very early on knew that I was always destined to create products um, that very much aligned, I guess, with my own, you know, visions and and kind of passions of of making a difference to people's lives. Uh, And so, I mean, I'd worked in the industry for a few years, but it was second year uni where everything kind of started from a business point of view and you know, juggling studies and running a business where you had no idea what you were doing <laughs> was, I think I was the age of 21, I think, when MedCorp actually kicked off and started. I'm now 31, so it's been a good 10 years innings, which is which is good. Mm. We've made it through that valley of death, which I think was extended out by people say it's two, three years. I think it was more like six for us. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so, I mean, it was one of those, you know, one of those things where you have a, you know, a tech head and a nerd who's um, self-confessed in that capacity, a more borderline geek, to be honest, <laughs> um, that just loved to tinker and loved to, to solve problems and was really fascinated with um, how, how systems work, especially in the healthcare industry. But, you know, as a, as a design engineer who was lived and breathed making products for other companies, I was really, I was always questioning why people were deciding to generate products that I was viewing as adding to landfill or not actually having any valuable impact on any of the customers or consumers that were interacting with them. Um, so I guess I was a rather annoying employee, especially as a junior engineer within businesses. <laughs> I'd be sitting there within, our, you know, big meetings around board tables. I should be just be taking notes and probably getting coffees for people, but I'd be questioning why we were doing things the way we were doing. So I was very fortunate, I guess, to work in businesses where they encouraged that kind of thought mentality and, and kind of gave me the the space to ask the questions, which which then ultimately led for me kind of building my skill set around producing products and, and being able to learn how to manufacture and take a product through to, through to manufacturing that gave me the confidence, I guess, that, you know, I was in my 20s when I resigned from full-time work and thought, you know what, it's now or never. We've got to give it a go. I've got enough, my 20s, I guess, I can learn to fail and my face can have a nice conversation with the concrete and still be able to get back up and, and have, you know, my 30s to re- recover my career. Um, but I think the second I made that decision that I was leaving full-time work and pursuing my own business, there was, there was no way I was turning back. It was from a young age. I was always somebody who was incredibly driven but also very motivated to create something, not just a product, but to want to create a change and make a difference. And I think my parents will attest to that. As a very, very young child, I was always creating and inventing things and knew that I was always going to have my own business at some point. Perhaps I just started that a little early <laughs> <laughs> than what my, my parents and, and friends and peers would have would have liked to have seen me do, I guess, yeah, resigning from full-time work at the age of 24 or 25, I think it was, 
that that was probably, you know, maybe you should have you know, <laughs> put some 10 years in the industry a little bit more before <laughs> doing that. But I mean, um, in hindsight, I wouldn't change a thing. I mean, it's obviously led to a fantastic outcome and our company's growing and, and we are creating technologies that are fundamentally, you know, saving lives. So I guess, I don't know, it's me in a nutshell, I guess, just a bit of a, an ambitious, crazy child that just kind of had a passion and a dream that I was just fortunate enough to have nurtured and have the people that were like, okay, we can't tell her no because <laughs> we're going to get an onslaught of like a thousand questions as to why it won't work. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think having that network around me was was fabulous and giving me the space to to actually pursue it. Oh, huge, Jackie. I read about you. I've looked into all your amazing things and it's just, but it's just so cool to hear it now and to hear <laughs> kind of the journey and, and where you really started and your thought process and all of that. So look, I want to dive deeper into your work and more into kind of how that all came about. But I'd, I'd like to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, what did your parents do? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? I'm very blessed with the parents that I have. Uh, from a very young age, I was raised in an environment where having a passion was a gift, um, that not everybody had a passion. If you do have passion, that that needs to be nurtured. And that, you know, when you know something, when you know you're passionate about something and you can't, it's what you live and breathe. And for me, from a young age, that was, I was incredibly passionate about it started off as horse riding, but it was still making products and trying to make an impact and, and do something in that capacity. And both my parents saw that as rare and that it needed to be nurtured. Um, by way of background of my parents, I grew up in a family where business was always discussed at the dinner table. Um, my dad was a very successful businessman. He ran his own manufacturing and um, company and, you know, manufactured product of no, boats, actually. We were, the family business was a, a third generation boat company, boat building company. And so that was ingrained in us as children as we had this third generation family business that had been very much on the forefront of manufacturing and automation and innovation within the marine space. And so that was just normal for me was to, you know, spend weekends with dad in the factory and kind of play with machinery and build things. And straight off the bat for me, it was actually a bit of a shock when I graduated university, having studied engineering, that people were asking me what it was it like to be a female engineer. Hmm. I was like, what do you mean? I'm just an engineer. There's no separate course for female engineering. I had no idea that there was a stereotype or a stigma about being a female engineer because I was raised in an environment where I'd hang out with everybody in the factory with my dad and it was fine. Like I was, this is I felt completely natural in that space and I never felt that I didn't belong. And so I was really fortunate to have that influence from my dad where it was just because you are, there was no conversation. It wasn't even brought up. It was never mentioned that I was heading into a male-dominated industry or you can't be an engineer or you can't work in the factory or you can't do that. That was just never even brought up. So for me, I had this beautiful naivety, <laughs> <laughs> I guess, about me yeah. and that whole industry. And it wasn't until I started working in the industry and hearing everybody else's stories. I was like, oh, this is a legit thing. Um, But so I was very fortunate in that capacity. And my mum's background is she's an artist, um, but also, and used to lecture at um, lecture masters within universities within Melbourne around fine art and design, but then also had a biology background as well. So um, was fabulous to have, I guess, the split of design and creativity with the manufacturing, but then kind of a bit more of the science behind there, which was, I mean, a lot of people 
I think when I talk about my parents be like, you're an absolute divide between both parents. And I was like, well, it was never actually the case. I think growing up in high school, I think as a teenager, I think I was just adamant that I wasn't going to follow my dad's career pathway. Um, I was actually incredibly passionate about horse riding and wanted to go to the Olympics. So that's where my drive and I guess the training from a really young age of this is what hard work looks like. This is what routine looks like. This is got to put the hours in kind of came from for the age of about five for me. Um, but I had a bad horse riding accident, which abruptly finished that career pathway for me. And it got to a point, I remember at school quite vividly, we went, you know, you do those psychometric tests or like the Myers-Briggs or any of those kind of things where they literally tell you what you're going to be mm. and where your strengths are. And it came back to me that engineering or design engineering would be a fantastic pathway for me. And it wasn't that I didn't think that I was a f that I couldn't do it because I was a female. It was just, I'm just not going to be my dad. Like, don't tell me I've just spent the last 10 years of my life trying to not be my mum and I've just turned into my dad. Like, I don't want to do that. So that was, that was probably the only holding back moment for me. But I think once I'd gone in and I think I snuck into a few lecturers at university, thanks to my mum, pulling a few strings um, and got to really say that this actually is something that fits me to a T um, and is very in line with what I want to do in terms of giving me the skill set to create, um, whether it be products or solutions that I know could make a difference and could really excite me and support that passion. Oh, huge. I just, I love hearing kind of how it all gets pieced together, you know, and I, I love asking that question because often what we do when we were younger or we love doing our passions, they do play a role in what we actually kind of like. Sometimes they, there is a correlation with mm. what we like today. But I guess my question to you is, for those of us who weren't as clear, you know, perhaps we're currently in a un university course that we're just like, this isn't for us, or we don't even know how to identify what we like, and mm. it wasn't as clear as it was for you. What advice would you give around figuring out what you're passionate about? And more so than that, figuring out what aligns best with you? Try everything. Mm. Try everything. I lecture... Um, kind of the masters of engineering at Swinburne University now. Uh, and I come across students every year that are sitting here going, I've just got to finish my degree, make my parents happy, and then I'll figure out what I want to do. And I, I wish that I'd seen them in their first or second year of university when they already knew that this wasn't for them. And consequently, I had take it on myself to kind of be like, <laughs> I, I always took it for granted. Mm. Like even though I was told that this is special, I never fully understood the, the the magnitude of how rare having passion is and knowing what you want to do is and having that direction and no, but knowing what you also don't want to do is also a big part of it. And for me, it's just, you know, some, sometimes I think we push passion too much that sometimes there might not just, you might not be crazy passionate. And that's a really hard thing to say to some people who've gone, sometimes you, you can love a whole lot of different things and not be passionate necessarily about one thing. But deep down there are values and there's that core belief system that everybody has where you can find a way to orchestrate and create your own, I guess, life around that. I don't like using the word career mm. because it's it's one of the same. Yeah. Yeah, it's life, right? <laughs> so for me, it's just just get out there. Get out there and try things. I have students that I've, I've I, you know, I'll, I'll call up RMIT and I've gone photography courses, just go do it. Here's a short course on the weekend, 
go and do it. And they turn around and be like, that was the biggest waste of my time. And I've gone, well, now you know you don't like it. Or what was it about that that you found interesting? I actually liked the people that I met. I've gone, well, what was it about meeting those people that you actually you know, liked. Mm. And for me, it's, I think it comes back down to like the classic engineering mentality of getting to the source of what the actual problem is, which is asking the the five whys. So you start with, well, why don't you enjoy it? And by the time you get to the fifth time that you actually ask the question why, you get to the root cause of the problem. And I think doing that in the same when it comes to any form of discovery, whether it be self-discovery, whether it be technology discovery, you're really getting to that core of what it is or what it isn't that's creating this emotion or creating this pathway or creating this mentality that you have about something. And that's something I do that within my team at work is we do it for problems, but then it's, it sits there and it's gone, I don't like working with this person. I've gone, but why? And they'll be like, oh, because they're noisy. I've gone, but why are they noisy? And then we keep going and it turns down, it's like, oh, okay, the other person sitting next to you isn't 100% fulfilled in what they're doing. We've got them working on tasks that they're getting distracted on. So let's put them on tasks that they actually focus on or relocate them to another space where they're next to somebody that they might not want to distract <laughs> as much. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? But it normally yes. comes down to, a, you know, something that doesn't normally, mm. you wouldn't normally realise unless you actually dig deep and actually find that out. But that's I guess me taking a very engineering <laughs> approach to to solving the biggest questions in life in terms of what's it all about and why am I here? <laughs> no, I love it. I think so many of us don't go that next layer. We just we just stop. We, th- yeah. we maybe ask the first two eyes, and we just go, okay, great. Well, then I don't know, and yeah. it's just too hard to keep asking those questions. How can we get better at looking deeper and asking the hard questions? It's a really good question. Um, I think there are people who naturally do that. I've always been somebody who naturally asks those questions. I think showing examples of where people have asked those questions and pushed deeper is a great way to illustrate and communicate, but also potentially inspire people to push beyond those uncomfortable first two whys. Um, But also I think making sure that when you are, whether it be friendship groups, whether it be teams within business, that you've got somebody that might be the most annoying person in the room because they ask the questions over and over and over again, um, which is me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's important to have those people. Um, I think surrounding yourself with people who are going or surrounding creating teams where you have almost a monoculture where everyone's happy to be, okay, that didn't work, that's fine, let's all be in agreement so we can feel warm and fuzzy about this decision, that's where you run into the issue that perhaps the creating a comfortable culture is not the answer, that we need to have a little bit of friction, that we need to have people who are willing to pull those questions out and they will be the least popular person in the room and the best thing about those people is they don't care. They don't care because what they care about is the problem. Um, so I think when building teams and, and groups of people, it's really important that if you are all aligned in terms of the, the goal and the outcome, that you have that diversity of personality that will not go into agreement with the rest of the team and are really happy and confident to stand up there and say, I call BS, like let's look at this a little bit further. Um, I try to do that the most I can. I try to 
it's hard because when you're that person yourself and you employ somebody like yeah. you. <laughs> um, oh, the funk begins. Yeah, and it does, it is a lot of fun. And you, huh. there is a line where you need to draw, you know, you need to draw that line at some point where you know, are we just now asking ridiculous amounts of questions? Like can we put some processes around this that we know we're not asking questions for the sake of it and we can take this as face value or we can take it at, you know, as what we're saying is this is correct or this is a no-go. Um, but, yeah, I think it is really important. I try to do that as much as I can. I think a lot of, I mean, that's engineering, I think, to a T. Most engineers are like that. They want to see the data, they want to see the background, they want to make an educated decision. Um, but I think it's a, it's, a really, it's a really good point and we do need to do more of that. I think Australian, Australia especially, we used to do that a lot. We used to do that a lot more we could, because we weren't afraid to ask the question and I think now we are a little bit more afraid than what we have been in the past, which is... I mean, it's just evident in our industries and how everything's changed over the last 20 years of, of the Australian economy, I guess. So, yeah, I think we just need to have a little bit more courage to kind of say that's not okay. Let's ask, let's, let's throw this at the whiteboard and pull it apart a little bit more. What I love about you, Jackie, is that you're you're very self-assured and confident and you're you're not afraid to go, you know, I love you're laughing at me right now. <laughs> for those of us who can't for those of you who can't see us because you're listening. Um, but I think, you know, it's so cool to see that you are just it seems to me like it's ingrained in you, that kind of, you know, that core confidence, or maybe it was built. I think my question to you is for those of us who perhaps aren't as confident and we we maybe we are afraid to put our hands up or be the only woman engineer in the room or whatever it may be, you know, what advice would you give on building that core confidence? I actually get asked this question a, a bit <laughs> and I, I kind of take a step back. I've gone, hang on, am I, am I coming across as that person no, really no. strongly? Do I need to check myself a bit? Like, <laughs> humility, like just need a bit of humility. Like, no, I think it's, um, look, I think to be completely honest, there's, there's an element of courage that I do mm. have that is natural. Um, or was ingrained at a young age because of the environment that I was raised in. At the same time, if not everybody's environment that they're raised in is, is lovely. I was a very terrible student in primary school. Um, I, you know, it was to the point that they kind of thought maybe we need to, you know, we're going to put you in every remedial learning group we possibly can because we're not, you know, we're not getting through to you and you're falling way too far behind. So as a young age, I had this fear that I was dumb and I had made that up in my head that I was stupid, that they had to keep me down a year in primary school and that meant that I was dumb. And consequently, that was a big insecurity mm. that I had. To now go off and have a, a wearable technology as an artificial <laughs> intelligence company and develop a piece of technology um, at the age of 21, there's, there's, everyone's kind of like, hang on, how did that happen? <laughs> um, and so there was, there was an element where I was, there was confidence to follow my passion. Mm. And I think it wasn't necessarily a self-confidence that I had, but it was this courage and confidence that I had to follow a passion because I knew that I had that. So I had, mm. that was something that was a real confidence building that I think was ingrained for me. But how I managed to go from somebody who seriously thought they were dumb and that university wasn't for them, I was never going to go to university. And then I dedicated myself to horse riding because I thought that that was honestly my only career option to then go and ducks my year at university and be voted top 100 engineering innovations for the decade by NASA. Like that is a big, oh, <laughs> that's a big jump. Huge. And that, I think that is, that is a learnt behaviour. That is a, 
that is not so much a learned behavior, sorry, that is me learning how to deconstruct the beliefs that I had about myself and dig deep to the root cause, five wise. Um, <laughs> I should write a book about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's coming next. But, decon- but deconstruct that to, you know, what was it that made me believe that I couldn't do this? And how do I address that? And what is it that I can do that nobody else can do? And how do I build on that? And it was a slow process. It did have, it did shift. I was in, I was got to a point where I was like, there's no way I could do this. This is not something I could do, but it was that passion and vision that I had for making a difference to creating a piece of technology that I knew from a personal experience would save people's lives. Um, that, that, outweighed my own personal insecurities about not being smart enough. Um, I also set a lot of goals for myself at university, knowing that I I know I can work hard and I work, work very hard. And at university, I knew I could work harder than most people in my class. I wasn't naturally the smartest person, but I knew I could learn. Anything that had been created from a physics principle was created by a human brain. I have a human brain, which means I can learn it. Um, so for me, I kind of was dissecting things to its kind of point of singularity so that I could be like, actually, no, let's remove all of my insecurities and my fears around this. It's actually possible. It's not, it just, you just got to work hard and put the hours in. And that's what I did. So my goal was I wanted to ducks my year and top, top the engineering faculty at university. I've gone, that would be hilarious if I could do that. That would be fabulous. Um, which I ended up doing, and that was a confidence building not saying everyone out there should go do that, but, you know, little steps along those ways that led me to believe that what I was thinking about myself wasn't actually the truth freed it up. And I think from a from a public speaking point of view, so I've done, I do, a, I used to do, I try to hold back now, but I do a lot of public speaking and that was a massive fear that I had, huge fear. Um, and it was, it's really funny when I look back now, when I first started MedCorp full-time and there was a lot of technology competitions and a lot of accelerators and all of that that was going around at the time. And it was, it required me to stand on the stage and pitch the technology and to stand on the stage in front of a board of incredible VCs, investors, or incredible CEOs of medical technology businesses and pitch my technology terrified the living daylights out of me. I was like, this is this is me. Oh, no, I can't do that. But it was that mental shift I had one night where my partner basically said to me, he's gone, why, why, do you, why are you projecting your insecurities on the technology you're creating? I've gone, well, it's me. He's gone, no, you're not. The business isn't you. Don't be so self-absorbed. And I was like, oh, truth bomb. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and I was like, that he's gone, you, and I said, that's exactly what I was doing. I was viewing myself as the business because I was the only one in it at that point. I hadn't, hadn't had my first employee yet. And it was, it was me. Um, and that's, I was very much then as a result, projecting my own insecurities on the business. And it was that second that I realized I was doing that. And I've gone, actually, no, if I'm going to really do this and I really want, I really want this technology out there because it will save people's lives. The only way I can do that is, is to be a great CEO and founder. And as a CEO and founder, it's your job to make sure it's successful, right? But you're actually an employee of the business. So I had that great epiphany where I could shift my mentality from being, I am the technology and this is my technology to I'm an employee of this business because this is way bigger than me now. And that it's my job to go out there and get money for this company and tell people about what I'm doing. I'm doing what we're doing. So that was a big shift. I was saying we a lot. Everyone's like, but how many people yeah. in the business? I'm like, it was, it was me. I used to do this. <laughs> 
but that and that was the yeah. role, and that was a big mental shift yeah. for me. And again, you know, it's going back to that courage and insecurities and that kind of stuff. You know, there are still insecurities. There's still a lot. I sit there and I'm like, oh, did you really just say that? Come on. Um, but it's it it comes down to the vision is bigger than me. The the impact is bigger than me. The lives that are going to be impacted and saved from what we're doing is much bigger than my own insecurity about getting on a stage. And the only way for me to be successful is to just pony up and stand out there, Have because I have the confidence in the technology. I have the confidence in what we're trying to achieve. And all your own crap just sits by the side by love. When you look at it in that way, it, it gives a really, it's really freeing. It still gets me though. Oh, <laughs> gets us all. Well, yeah. It still gets you. But I think there's perspective and that's the that is the brilliance of passion when there's passion you you don't you're not thinking inwardly you're thinking outwardly and that that is probably the biggest challenge is to make sure you're always outward looking and that's where that courage comes from i love it i love it <laughs> i guess a question i've got for you now is i'd love to know what that technology i know what it is but <laughs> i'd love you know for all of our amazing peers out there listening to for you to explain what that technology was that you created at 21 okay so i the how MedCorp started was that I had a one of my my best friends was diagnosed with cancer, and went through many months of um, chemotherapy, and unfortunately passed away. And it was through that whole process of I I would leave uni on Fridays to just sit with her in day oncology while she was having chemotherapy every week, and we would talk about it. And I was obviously studying biomedical engineering at that point, and would sit there and was noticing what was going around in the hospital, you know, the processes and the systems. And I'd be talking to her about what she had to do and a lot of the other, um, you know, young young cancer patients as well because there was quite a community amongst amongst us. I concluded I was, I was there so much. There, we, we were, there was such a community there and we all knew each other. We'd all catch up. We started doing, you know, canteen projects together um, for charities. And it was one thing that I, that really hit home for me was that we had a, a close family friend um, that had passed away a couple of weeks after my friend had. And I was really angry because I had learnt that patients were being required to monitor their temperature twice a day. Um, their immune systems are so compromised that they need to be able to detect if they have a fever very quickly. There's a there's a very small window when you are that immune compromised to be able to detect that. And consequently, they're required to monitor their temperature one to two times a day, which I knew nobody was doing. I knew they were waiting until they felt sick, until they took their temperature. Um, and as was the case with my friend, you know, it'd get to a Sunday, she'd take her temperature, she wouldn't call the doctor because she felt he had more important people to see. Um, and then with our family friend, the same thing happened and it was called the doctor on the Monday, admitted to hospital, passed away Wednesday from an infection. So firsthand I'd seen a system that was supposed to be preventative failing them um, and it wasn't working because you're putting decision-making of people's health in the hands of patients that aren't fully aware of what's really going on. So I was very angry and I went back and demanded a meeting with the head of oncology at the hospital that they were both being treated at. And I spoke to I've gone, this is ridiculous. Is this just a fluke or am I just seeing something that's incorrect? Am I not understanding the full picture here? Because I've spoken to a few people and I'm hearing that a lot of people are passing away 
from undetected infections or undetected infections are a result of a lot of readmissions and or delayed detections causing a lot of, you know, they have to skip their, skip their next treatment because their immune system isn't strong enough or they've got pneumonia or something. And the head of oncology at the hospital turned around and said, was gone, well, to be completely honest, infection is the primary cause of death for patients receiving chemotherapy, not cancer. And that just hit me. I've just gone, well, that's ridiculous. Gone, well, we have no other way of monitoring their, their core body temperature, which is how you detect the early signs of infection. And I was like, well, can we not just force them and make an app that forces them to take their temperature with a thermometer? They go, well, thermometers aren't really accurate anyway. The accuracy that we need for these patients, we can't achieve with a, anything that's kind of existing. And I was gone, okay, as a product design engineer and as a biomedical engineer, what can I do to help you save these people's lives? And you know, what can I do to help you more efficiently and effectively treat your patients? And what he said next was the foundation of what created MedCorp. And he said, the amount, allow me the ability to communicate directly with the patient's body and not their mind, not their filtering of when they communicate with me, not their filtering of what an, an experience, you know, what a side effect is looking like, but enable me to communicate ex- directly with their body. That would save hundreds of thousands of lives every year, more than that. Um, and so that's where it kind of started. I started looking at pieces of technology that could measure temperature remotely in the home, um, but also within the hospital continuously so that you could detect an early signs of infection within a couple of hours or less than that. None of the existing technologies out there did that, hence the it's been 10 years. Um, <laughs> so we ended up developing a sensor from scratch, which is not something you do. <laughs> but at 21, you think, why not? I can give it a go. Um, and then, at, you know, four years later, you're like, no, we can do this. This is still, we can still do this. Because I, I had a very emotional and personal connection with the vision. Um, and so we, we think it was 2015, I want to say it was, is when we first demonstrated, actually for the first time ever, that we could measure core body temperature within clinical accuracy from the surface of the skin in a patch-worn device. Um, and incredible, it was groundbreaking. It had never been done, which is then we were had incredible recognition from NASA and, and a lot of other big com- companies, which kind of skyrocketed what we were doing. And, you know, we'd been told for years that there was no way that a couple of engineers at that point, especially one being a female, under the age of, you know, 30 with less than five years of industry experience combined could could do this. But, you know, there were companies that have been doing it for ages. Um, but we did. We successfully demonstrated that we could do that and then moved that quickly into humans in terms of human validation, which we completed two years ago now, 18 months ago now. So now we're transitioning into the next phase, which is um, regulatory approval. So the product itself now is like a, it's a wearable patch. It went through many, many iterations, <laughs> um, but it's now a wearable patch. And the idea is that you can remotely from anywhere um, continuously monitor core body temperature with now enabled with artificial intelligence. We have pattern recognition. So instead of being a diagnostic device, we're now predictive. So we can predict your body's and basically following your 24-hour temperature cycle and where there's a slight shift in it, we can actually detect that you have an infection before your body's temperature actually shows that you have an infection, um, which is, I mean, the power of artificial intelligence, which is 
really cool. But we're now in that process of we've got big data and big security um, challenges that we're now working through with the government um, and also the artificial intelligence and data security um, board that's been created for the G20 about how are we going to enable this on a global scale because it's not just in the home now, it's the real hospitals now want to have it integrated within every single ward because controlling infections within hospitals is, I mean, all you need to think about now is looking at the coronavirus. And if you had the, the ability to predict people's health, and we can do that after 48 hours of monitoring them for, you know, monitoring them for 48 hours, we could have enough data to be able to predict that um, is instrumental, obviously, when something like like this happens. Unfortunately, if we were only a year ahead of where we are yeah. now, we'd be, <laughs> we'd be helping. But um, we're having some very interesting conversations at the moment with China. Oh my goodness, Jackie, every time. And I just think, hearing just your sheer willingness, your sheer courage to just make it happen at such a young age. And I think so many of us hold back on things that we think are impossible or people tell us. You said for many years it wasn't like one day you thought, okay, at 21 and the next day it was there. It's been 10 years. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just, I guess my question to you is how do you stick at it when everyone's telling you you're crazy? It's hard. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even, it's very easy to do the highlight reel of the business, <laughs> right? It's very easy to say, here are all my glory moments of the last 10 years. And I had unwavering faith that we would be able to achieve this and that I was positive every single day and that there were zero meltdowns. <laughs> um, but that's not the reality. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm very open and honest about that. I think more people need to be really honest about how hard it actually is. Um, I have a really supportive fiance. Um, we've been together since I was 21. So he's seen me through the entire journey. Um, and that's, I think that's where you start having, I've got a, I've got an amazing cheer squad behind me personally. Obviously I'm the cheer squad for my team and the business. Um, and, but you know, when things go wrong and things are hard, you know, we talk about it together. We'll be like, okay, we're calling it a day. It's two o'clock. Let's go to the pub <laughs> and let's just drink through this for a second. Um, and we will do that and we do that together. But ultimately, as a leader, you need to be the strength for your team. Um, but I have an incredible team behind me. My mom, my dad, my two sisters and my partner, he, I mean, they they know why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, they know the motivations behind it. They are so, they feel like they think they, they are a part of the business in a sense, because I will, I come, I'll come home and I'll be fetal position, bottom of the shower, be like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. I don't know if I can walk back into the office tomorrow and keep a happy face. Cause we just got so close to a massive deal and it fell over at the last minute or whatever it might be, but it's, you know, it's one of those moments gone, okay, let's let's have kids. Like I, just, <laughs> like I get to them and knowing that that's not, a, not, that's not even a result of, of that's a much harder job than what I'm doing guaranteed. But I'm just like, maybe we can, maybe we'll just have a family and we'll go move to the country and we'll just do that. And my partner just looks at me, he's like, you're crazy. Like that's, that's not even a feasible thing for you to do at all. And that's not what you're put on this earth to do. That's, that doesn't align with this is, you've got to keep doing this, but it does get hard. But I think if you just, if you surround yourself with the people who are going to be your champions and they, and you make sure you have a cheer squad um, that have your interests at heart as well, it makes it a lot easier. But at the end of the day, I mean, it goes back to the passion, right? You could give me an incredible salary and I could go work for an incredible business as their innovation lead or their head of engineering and data or whatever and to me it's 
you know, I've had, I, you know, I was, I was given an incredible job as a graduate that not a lot of graduates get the opportunity to have. And I was bored. I was absolutely bored because my values didn't align with theirs. And to me, sometimes I do that. I'm like, maybe we can just do this. It'll be so much easier, mm. right? But then I know myself and I know it's actually, it's, I'd prefer to not pay myself a salary for like the next 12 months or 18 months and sink that money back into the business to recoup the costs or the loss that we've just had. And because not getting paid and doing this is far better than doing something that doesn't align with my passion. Like it's, there's something broken in my brain, I'm sure, but I just, I can't, I couldn't do it. Like the idea of everyone's like, it gets hard. I was like, you know, you've got this amazing opportunity and opportunities do come across. Mm. You know, we get, I get some fantastic companies that offer me the most incredible, you know, positions. And I just, I'm like, mm, deep down, I know I'd, It'd be fun for a week <laughs> and I'd be dragging my feet to work every single day flying on the internet. I'd be a terrible employee. Like, I just don't. And I'm very honest. I'm like, you don't want me as an employee. Like I'm just not. I'm not going to bring, bring the value that I brought to my business to yours. <laughs> um, so I think, I mean, it's one of those things like I know this is, this is the pathway. Mm-hmm. But there are many different ways to go about it and we've, we've done that. There are elements of our business that we um, have created um, that they still align with the values but it's, not to, the, it's, it's to assist the, the end goal but we've spun out elements of our technology and created consumer products and all of that which I probably wouldn't do by, them, by themselves but they exist to support, you know, whether it be revenue coming in or, um, you know, avenues that we're creating in distribution networks through another consumer brand within to, within pharmacies um, that will support us when we do launch or market. So, you know, there's there's more ways that you can you can do it. It's you can get a bit more creative with the process so that you're not always confronted with the fact that you are definitely trying to achieve the impossible which does get exhausting. So it's important to have those little wins along the way, which is where Mayo Play came from. Mm, and that's exactly what I want to dive into. I just, I, I will say, I just, I, there's a lot of respect here. I feel so many of our, our peers out there listening would probably just think, I didn't even think it would be like, you know, 10 years in, you think, oh, the, you get all the attention and all this. It's like, no, it still can be hard, you yeah. know, when you're trying to achieve the impossible, when you're trying to do something that no one's ever done before. And even more so than that, when you're trying to stay aligned to what you care about and do the things that you actually, you know, want to do that contribute to your passion or contribute to the world in general. Mm. So, no, I love that. So talk to us a bit about me play. I I think it's just amazing how you decided to create this to fund yeah. um, the technology. Talk to us a little bit. So it was so Meoplay is a um, health and development brand for infants. So we've developed a range of educational toys that use medical grade materials. So we've created a range which is the first antibacterial teething toy on the market. Um, it's using medical grade silicon and it has an antibacterial um, surface finish on it. Very simple. For us, anyway, it was a, it was a very easy. But people always look at me going, "But how do you, why do you have a consumer baby product brand <laughs> and baby toy brand? But you have this big tech <laughs> idea business. Like you've got MedCorp, which is hardcore tech, and then you have consumer baby, which is, I mean, Mio Play aesthetically. When you look at it, it's like, well, this is just pretty product. These are beautiful, beautiful products. So there's a lot more science that goes behind it. We actually have doctors and neurobehavioral scientists that 
design the products with me on that. Um, so there's a lot of science and developmental learning that goes into it, which we probably should push a little bit more on our marketing, to be <laughs> honest. Um, but no, that I mean, that was after the Telstra Businesswoman Awards back in 2016. I, I had about 18 months of incredible press um, and I was 26. Oh. So young. Was I? I can't remember. <laughs> 27. Um, <laughs> 26. Um, and it was, yeah, it was it was a lot for someone my, my age. Um, I was put into a category which was women and business leaders of 20, 30 years more experience than me. So, and it was an incredible award to win. I didn't win the Young Businesswoman Awards, which is where you get a, I guess you get a bit more of a network around people who are in that young category with you. I was in the entrepreneurs category, which was an incredible opportunity. I mean, I, it was, I think I was the youngest to have ever been a finalist for the category. And it was incredible. But off the back of that, a huge amount of press came and attention came our way. And I didn't know how to manage it. I really struggled mentally to cope with the attention. Um, we were also a big, you know, we're a hardcore tech company where IP is so important. So being able to talk mm. about our product was limited in ways and all people want to do is how did you do it? And it's like, well, I can't tell you that because I'd be really, really sucky at commercialization <laughs> if I walked out there and told you what our, yeah. what our algorithm was. Um, so for me, I found it really challenging and I found myself going through these this this two-year period, not 18 months, but about two-year period of saying yes to everything because I felt like I had to seize every opportunity that I was getting. I knew the attention that I was getting and the big speaking engagements at you know, big tech conferences that I was getting was an opportunity of a lifetime and that I had to seize it. Um, and so I said yes to everything and I was so burnt out by the end of it I think you hear about burnout and you think, oh, I've got a cold or I've got tired and my brain's just stopped working. I had reached a point of extreme adrenal fatigue and just could not function. Um, I'd also found myself, I think, changing who I was as a leader because I felt that I needed to be more of the corporate CEO or be more of, I was trying to be what I thought other people wanted me to be, um, not acknowledging the fact that I had been given these awards and these opportunities based on who I was before that. Um, but I felt that I had to be something that I wasn't because of the recognition to give myself more credibility, where in actual fact, the credibility was there in the recognition to begin with, and I didn't have to do anything. So I'd lost sight of me. I think that's the biggest thing is I hadn't lost sight of the vision or the goal of what we were doing, but I'd lost sight of how do I look after me and how do I stop giving to everybody and not keeping any energy for me. And I wasn't managing my energy well whatsoever. And I'd found myself just doing meetings and incredible, like, you know, it was, I was speaking, I was meeting, I was doing all of that, but I wasn't doing what I was really good at, which was sitting with the dev team and the tech development and the, and the tech engineers and pacing to bear and stop problem solving and getting my hands on the actual design. I was off the tools completely and in this CEO role, which I had no training for. <laughs> I had never even managed a team. <laughs> the previous job I had before starting MedCorp was a junior engineer <laughs> in a manufacturing company. <laughs> like, 
And I don't think people realise that. So I'd gone from here to here. So imposter syndrome was through the roof. So here I'm like, okay, well, we've got to like, wear, people wear lipstick now. We've got to wear lipstick <laughs> in a boardroom. Or it was the most silly things. And it was really detrimental to me and my my creativity. And so my sister had just had a baby. So I'm, I'm like talking on about this. But my sister had a baby and that was literally started off looking for a product for her. And I couldn't find anything. I was like, I'm not buying any of this placky tacky stuff for my sister this is the first you know this is the first child in the family and I was like you know what this could be done so much better I was looking at the materials that were being used I was looking at design of the products being used I knew a bit about developmental learning science and we'd done a bit of research in that space within the team and I was like this is actually not okay what people are putting in front of their infants it's way too stimulating for that first six months we know that it aggravates them it's going to disrupt their sleep it's you've also got products that you're putting out there that you can't put in a steriliser, which doesn't make any sense. You've got products that are breaking down because they're natural rubber, which is not a thing, but but there's there's these products that are cutting them open, they're full of mould and all of that. I've gone, this is not okay. So that's where I, I basically created a product for my sister as a present. And <laughs> as you do. Well it was it was a creative outlet for me. It was it was more of a psychological yoga. I guess it's it was a bit of yoga for me was me getting back on the tools and creating something and kind of diverting my attention away from from Medcorp for a little bit from that I had brought somebody in to manage the elements of the business that I had been doing daily which I knew were not my strengths and I was like you know what I need to find that mojo again I need to get back to what I'm really good at and that's problem solving Um, and that's looking at things through a different lens and looking at technologies across multiple industries and combining them together to create a solution that improves the end user's quality of life or provides value to that person. And I think that was a big thing. I couldn't see the value I was creating on a daily basis doing what I was doing. And I'd kind of lost that. I knew what the business was doing. I didn't feel that I was generating value for the business. Um, so I created this product that then um, I had a lot of people from mothers' groups contacting me about, can I have one, can I have one, can I have one? And I was like, oh, this could be kind of cool. Um, we could, let's just do a little short production run. You know, let's, I can do that. We've got manufacturing set up. We can do this quite easily. Uh, I allowed myself six months and it was a one day a week. So it was a Sunday afternoon Mm. to pursue it. And it became my business yoga. It was my creative outlet. Um, the team really liked it because we were so, we're such a heavy R&D business. We haven't moved into the sales marketing distribution for Medcorp. So, and I knew that that was a really long way away. It is. I mean, medical technology and devices, is it's a 15 to 20-year game. And I thought this would be a fabulous opportunity for me to learn that next stage so that when I'm moving into it with Medcorp, I, despite being different industries, it's still a regulated product, but I understand what's necessary and it will, I think it will inform me but also give me credibility that I can commercialise a product and I can do sales, marketing and distribution. So that's how Meoplay started and it very quickly <laughs> turned into a business of its own (laughs) where we 100% of the profits go to Medcorp and fund all of our R&D. We're sold. We're in 14 countries now um, building the brain. It's a life of its own now, a complete (laughs) life of its own. Um, But, yeah, we're we're transitioning a lot more towards that developmental science space of of the industry and really focusing on our core capabilities is – We've got doctors, we've got scientists, and we know medical devices, so we know safety. Um, the fact that they, it's aesthetically good, look, like it's a good-looking product, yeah. and <laughs> it looks great, is purely just because 
that's the style that I like. Mm. And I know that, you know, people don't want to have placky tacky products in their houses. Um, but yeah, that's, that was, it started off as a business yoga, but it was also, I think gave the team, but also the business and everyone around me this, we've got wins now that are coming not five years apart, not three years apart, but we can see the growth and we can see what we're doing, but we've got learning in areas that we actually need to know about. And retrospectively, being able to have done that and look at MedCorp now, we've made some serious changes about how our business is going to evolve based off of having gone in to markets and how we've entered markets and how we have opened up distribution channels and all of that. It's been very different. So we... the there was quite a strong strategy around developing a teething toy range because they're sold in pharmacies. We knew there was a need for something that was antibacterial and, and could go in a steriliser and a dishwasher, but it opens up a distribution network for us within pharmacies for MedCorp. And so when you do have, you know, meetings with investors and you sit there and they're like, well, you're a founder of a company, but you haven't got any past record. You can sit there now and be like, no, we do. We're an international baby product brand and we have this amount of pharmacies in our distribution network now. So if we want to pull out a consumer product out of MedCorp and our technology, we can roll out in this this network now. And we've got those relationships already open and a proven brand as well behind us to do that. So, and I'm also no longer somebody who doesn't, doesn't know about business, I guess, or doesn't know about the commercialize. I know, I know the first half of the commercialization process. I know now the other half. The whole thing now. uh, Yeah, Yeah. I get, I get it now. Um, and, and that has shifted. So our budget's Mm. shifted dramatically in terms of what we need to commercialize Medcorp, you know, understanding the marketing is 80% of the game (laughs) and, you know, are there more strategic ways we can go about our commercialization process within MedCorp, having understood now what distributors, you know, the management is required around having a distributor or how do we enter into new markets or can we be smarter about certain things? So it's been fabulous. I think it was just more, I've just accelerated my learning. Uh, (laughs) Nice acceleration process. Yeah. I feel Uh the last two years, I think I've aged 10 years, but it's, um, (laughs) it's been, it's been a really, it's been a really, um, rewarding journey. Mm. Um, I'm very excited to see, see where we go. This year is going to be a big year for us, which is really exciting, especially with Play. That's yeah. That's going to start seeing some really, really cool growth this mm. year, which is really fun, which is just going to go hand in hand with MedCorp, which is what we want. So it's good. My goodness, Jackie, I love it. I could literally just sit here all day with you. <laughs> I, everything you say, I'm just hanging off the end of every word. Um, no, I love it. And I think it's just so cool to see that you've you've been able to navigate and go through all the different pathways that you have, but it's still very aligned to what you're looking to achieve with MedCorp and whatnot. And we can't, I just can't personally, I can't wait to see what happens with you guys this year and just to follow along and, you know, we'll obviously have to be keeping me up to date on that one. Um, we'll come I'm, back again next year and I'll be like, so, talking about failure. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, Which no. Which is what we want to be talking yeah. about right now. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love it. Oh, Jackie, look, as we come to the close of today's episode, I just firstly want to acknowledge you for the phenomenal journey you've been on for the last 10 years. You know, you've you've won all the awards, you've, you know, got all the recognition, but more so than that, you've developed something that is of such value, more than one thing that is of such value. And I think you show us that, you know, if we've got a passion, if we've got a dream, if we've got a goal, as long as we stick at it, we will ultimately get there, even if it is 10 years, 20, whatever it may be. And for that, we really appreciate you. Thank you. 
Awesome. So the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? It's just making a difference. That is it. That is the only thing that drives me, the only thing that drives the team. But it's knowing that you have so many days on this earth, like you're born and you die, the two things you are certain of. And how you want to spend that time, or how I want to spend my time here, is I want to I want to make a difference, but a positive difference that you know that you've improved someone's day or you've improved their quality of life or you've saved their life or you've brought a life back to a family who has a child who's in chemotherapy and can't go on play dates in case they get a cold. It's being able to know that you can contribute positively to the rest of our society. And like you said, all it is is hard work. It's really... And hard work is actually not that hard. It's just work, right? <laughs> Hearing it from the source. Uh, but that's, yeah. it's, not, it's not unachievable mm. and that's the beauty in it. It's like, oh, it's so hard. I've gone, is it really? It's just work and you just got to do it more than most. There's nothing, nothing more rewarding about that. Jackie, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. We have had a blast. Where can people learn more about you, MedCorp and MePlay? Oh, um, so we, you can look at us online. We're online websites. We're medicorptechnologies.com or Meoplay, which Meoplay. is, yeah, Meoplay, M-I-O-P-L-A-Y.com.au. We've got our whole journey up there as well. They both link into, link into each other. So there's a lot about what we're doing on, with Medcorp on Meoplay's website. <laughs> Love it. Perfect. We'll link them up in the show notes. Jackie, thanks so much once again. No worries. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here to see what else we're up to visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on instagram at thepeersproject we'll have fresh real talk for you next week peers until then if you need inspiration look amongst your peers